Good afternoon. Good evening. Uh, welcome. Welcome to Myth Take, a yep. fresh take on ancient, ancient myth. myth. I'm Allison. And I'm Darren. And we're here to talk about Greek myth. Yep. Uh, yeah, we sure are. Each week, what do we do? We examine a passage from Greek poetry and plays, literature, ancient Greek literature, and we discuss the various mythological themes that we encounter, and we just have a, a little conversation about it. And yeah. we hope that you listen and follow along each week. And a warm welcome to our new listeners. We've picked up a bunch of you recently and hopefully um, are about to pick up a bunch more. Um, we're glad to have you as part of our audience and part of our conversation too. Sure, of course. Um, you can join our conversation online at mythtake.blog, right? Yes. Yeah, see, I got that one right. Yeah. And uh, hashtag is mythtake, of course, on Twitter. And also uh, hashtag humanities podcasts. Yes, to find uh, lots of other great humanities podcasts, classics, and otherwise. Yeah. Just uh, hashtag humanities podcasts on Twitter. Right. And if you're in the Facebook group, you're going to see an extended list of those people. And you will probably want to include the hashtag humanities podcasts on your tweets as well. Yeah. yeah. Um, and you can find a list of our, our network, uh, humanities podcast network members on the Myth Take blog. Yep. It's a nice, easy directory there for you. So, how's it going this week for you? So, not bad. Busy week. It has yeah. been a busy week. Busy week. Uh, you know, first kind of real week back doing things in the classroom. So, mm -hmm. that's always a bit of a shock because, you know. You, you get you a little think, lazy over Christmas. A, you know, you could, yeah, you, could, you get a little lazy. It could be a dream. It could be a nightmare. You don't know, right? It's just the new beginnings. So that's a fragile time for anything, right? Mm -hmm. So, that's, that's so you got to mm -hmm. lay down a good pattern, get in there, do it properly. Yeah. And uh, so it's, it's pretty good. But uh, I think we've got a pretty good topic for tonight. Something, something unexpected, so a little left field. Yeah, something a little bit different. And yeah. our topic is Pindar's Olympian Ode number one, mm -hmm. which probably doesn't mean very much to a lot of listeners unless you're a diehard classicist. Mm -hmm. But this is uh, one of the versions of the myth of Pelops. Yeah, Pelops. Yeah. So it's really about Pelops. Yes, it is. Yeah. It is about Pelops. Well, that's what we're going to be discussing is, yeah. is the... The hero king, Pelops. Yeah, so the uh, Olympian Ode was written as an ode to honor... Uh, the guy's name is Hieron. Yeah. Right? He's a charioteer. He's the son of a famous Syracusan tyrant, an actual historical figure. And this was your prize when you won in the Olympics. Totally. Was yeah. to get a poem. To get, yeah. Pindar, and... he composed Epinician poetry. That's his job. So here's one of his poems, the Olympian one, right? It's a victory in a four-horse chariot race. Probably a four, although they speculate it might be a two. The four was the one that was the prestigious. So yeah. as far as oh, the theme's we, concerned, you yeah. want to go with a four over the two. More. Well, although there is a line later on in yeah. the in the ode yeah. that suggests that maybe this is just the two. Well, yeah, that's, yeah, that's what I said. It's, when it's we either get or. There, yeah. yeah. Well, um, we won't spend too much time, I guess. When did he the compose background. these odes? Uh, Mid-5th century mid -fifth BCE, century. so kind of end of the archaic, beginning of the classical period. Okay, so I have a, a date of 522 to 443 BC for this famous Theban yeah. poet. Yeah. He's Theban. Oh, I, didn't, I did not realize that. Yeah. Well, you know, yeah. so we, again, that's interesting. We, we don't right? study him very much, though. No, we don't. We, in my experience. Well, no, it's often true. It, it, a lot of people don't read them. They see that the poetry is a little too difficult, 
especially to translate. Uh, but from what I've read, it's not really his fault, per se. It's not his style. It's the style that he's writing in, because when they started to translate Bacchylides, they found it was the same sort of thing that was going on there. So it's, <laughs> they, were they were blaming him for something else, that he's just trying to write in a particular style that made it just a little bit more obtuse. So should we give our listeners a background of the myth, Philops, a quick rundown of, of, of what happens, sure. or should we let them explore it through the literature? No, Pelops. Okay. Cool. So where do we want to start? Well, just a simple, you know, hey, ever hear of the Peloponnesus? Yes, I have, as uh -huh. a matter of fact. Translated into ancient Greek, the Peloponnesus into English means? Pelops Island. Island of Pelops, right. Even so, though it's not technically an island, it's pretty darn close. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's, so, that's named after him. Right. Uh, this famous hero king, right? Yep. Son of Tantalus. Son of Tantalus. And Tantalus, according to most in tellings of the myth, and as we know, there's lots of variations in myth, but mm -hmm. as most tellings of the myth, uh, Tantalus is a good good buddies with Zeus and the other Olympian gods. Sure. And decides to play a bit of a trick on them and chops up his son Pelops yeah. to feed him to the gods, right. which is a pretty bad joke. That's a, yeah, it's not good. And uh, Demeter, overcome with grief still for her lost uh, Persephone, accidentally eats some of the stew before she realizes that it is human stew. Mm -hmm. and, you know, I thought the gods drank nectar and ate ambrosia, so why would they be eating human food anyways? Who well, knows? It's, it's, it's myth. Don't think, too myth. <laughs> Don't think too deeply. <laughs> Don't think too deeply. <laughs> So they do, right? They're, they're, yeah. well, she's distracted and maybe she, who knows? Anyways, yeah. that's one of the little wrinkles in the plan. Hence and, the ivory shoulder. Yes. Yeah. And so when the gods reconstitute him, he's missing his shoulders. So yeah, and most people, most people, when you get chopped up by your father and serves the gods, have a tendency to, to die as a result of that, right? But no, but this, he gets a special destiny and he's reborn, yeah. right? And Tantalus, of course, gets special punishment in the afterlife, in the underworld. Mm -hmm. And he is... Uh, One of the great sinners. Yes. Yeah. And this is where we get our word tantalizing from. Right. It is from Tantalos. He is... Forever hungry and thirsty, but when he draws uh, near the water to drink, the water recedes, sure. and he reaches for the fruit, and the branches recede. So you can always see it, and it's always just out of reach. That's right. So that's kind of the standard version that most people are probably familiar with. But we'll give you a bit of a heads up that Pindar is working with a slightly different version. Yeah. Which gives us a slightly different idea of Pelops. Right. So why don't... And it also introduces the idea that there are, in fact multiple traditional myths mm -hmm. right so you can have different versions at different times according to different people and for different purposes and audiences so uh this is something we get with the hero pelops and it's great you know it's great to have this because this is a victory ode and you're like well what's so victorious and grand and noble about this terrible story of a father killing his son right this is pelops this is his destiny so, but you will see in here as we move through some of the sections. I think we've divided it up into what three or four, four. three or four. It's not a particularly long ode. It's only a, so we're actually going to do the whole thing this yeah, time. We, we don't usually get to yeah, tackle a whole piece. Yeah, I think it's only a hundred odd lines or something. Yeah. We'll uh, we'll read it in a couple of different sections and then stop and then have a little chat about little sections. Okay, let's get started then. Okay. For Hiron, son of Denomenes, from Syracuse, victor in the horse race. Best is water, and gold, like blazing fire by night, shines forth preeminent amid the lordliness of wealth. 
But if it is contest that you wish to sing of, O oh my heart, do not look further than the sun for warmth and brilliance in a star amid the empty air of day, nor let us herald any games as superior to Olympias, from which comes glorious song to cast itself about the intellects of skillful men to celebrate the son of Kronos when they have arrived amid abundance at the blessed hearth of Hiron, who wields his scepter lawfully amid the fruitful fields of Sicily. He calls the foremost of all excellences, and he is made resplendent too by music's choicest strains, such songs as we men often sing in playful fashion around his friendly table. But from its peg take down the Dorian lyre, if both Pisa's grace and Pharinicos's have placed your mind beneath the spell of sweetest thoughts, recalling how beside the Alpheus he rushed, giving his body strength ungoaded to the race, and so infused his lord with mastery, the Syracusan king whose joy is horses. So that is the first 24-ish? Sure. 23, 24 lines? Yeah, it's the first section. Yeah. It's, it's, kind, of, it's kind of the introduction, right? It's going yeah. to set part, it's, it's setting the tone in a sense that, one, it's telling you who it's for, right? This epinition of who is being composed for. Um, and it hasn't really got into the myth side of things so much mm -mm. because the audience knows what these epinition poems are, are for, the context of the Olympic Games and the context here of the Olympian sanctuary of Zeus, right? Uh, Olympia is mentioned as well as several geographical features of the of the region are mentioned in the environment of Olympia. So we're, we know we're ready. And plus it uses words like contest, right? And skill and arete and agon and things, right? Mm -hmm. This is part of the vernacular of ancient athletics, right? So they know what they're kind of getting ready for. He hasn't really set up to his audience what mythological theme he's going to use to kind of compare and contrast to the the to uh, what is the actual guy's name? Heron, right? Yeah. Or Heron, right? Yeah. And um, he he hasn't really got into that yet, but uh, but he will. But I do like the sort of powerful imagery, right? The the very first lines where it talks it says, "Best is water and gold, like blazing fire by night, shines forth preeminent amid the lordliness what's, of wealth." What's he trying to get out there? Well, again, it's more like an introduction. It's one of those mental epiphany or imagery kind of focusing scenes. Like you see, um, for me, it it um, it links through to, say, like uh, Odyssey 23 during the recognition scene or okay. during the washing scene where uh, Anticlea sort of sees Odysseus and then she drops the bowl. Remember the way the poet describes the sonic mm -hmm. quality of the ringing bronze bowl? Bong, you know, mm -hmm. that kind of thing. And And... You hear it in your mind. Well, these images here are, are sort of setting you up. It's sort of the same sort of notion, right? You can picture the rope, the the light reflecting off the water, right? You can picture uh, gotcha. you yeah. can picture the gold, you know, gold mm -hmm. by firelight shimmers mm -hmm. magically, you know, these mm -hmm. types of things, right? And and they're 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 talking about their expressions of of their elemental sort of expressions of lordliness and wealth here, right? That they they're shining forth preeminent. Um, well, then, and, and the sun then he switches, as well. right? Yeah. Well, it's great, right? Because he talks about the brilliance of the, of the sun in composition to the in comparison to the brilliance of the stars, right? He's saying Olympia is like the sun, right? Compared to the stars, the stars are bright and wonderful, and each has their own thing. But Olympia is the sun, right? Olympia is the sun amongst the stars, right? Um, if you if you're looking for warmth and brilliance, right, amid the empty air of day, look no further than the sun. Right? Mm -hmm. um, 
or so, any games as superior to Olympia's. Right, because so, there's a there's a whole catalog of games, right? Yes, we have, and we there's have the periodos. So yes, and there's there's the four big Panhellenic ones of which yeah. of which the Olympic Games were one. Totally. Um, Nemean. Yep. Isthmian. Isthmian. Delphi. And Delphi. Yeah. All had all had these uh, these games that yeah. people from all over Greece came, mm-hmm. and it, and it was an exercise in Panhellenic identity. Sure. Well, as, yeah, as well as a competition, right? Just like our modern Olympics, yeah, um, are about in, bringing together and about unity and all of those. Yeah, how we like to perceive ourselves as global citizens, but yeah. they're also about competition between. Oh, it's totally about competition. Yeah. I don't think yeah. they had any pie in the sky imagery about no. Panhellenism when they no. went there. But but, but it serves it an important Panhellenic yeah. Yeah, uh, purpose. It's extremely mythological, extremely ritualistic. It's it's. Uh, this is not a secular type of thing, right? This is no. this is this is ritual, and the Olympia is is the preeminent one, right? It's the main game. And as it mentions a little later down, or I guess just in the next few lines, references uh-huh. Zeus. These yep. games were to honor Zeus. Top they dog. are a religious uh, yeah. festival in honor of Zeus. So, yes, they are not a uh, not just any old games. No. It's not, <laughs> not your ordinary a, track meet. Just saying, yeah, exactly. This ain't just a rip around the old yeah. track, right? Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's a big and, deal. And the Olympic Games as as well, or this uh, the site, the sanctuary of Olympia, as mm-hmm. one of these Panhellenic sanctuaries, um, is very much a display pa- uh, place of display as well, mm-hmm. where different cities, different people, different benefactors build monuments, erect monuments, yeah. provide ser- um, services uh, like fountains and aqueducts and that sure, kind of thing. Sure, and their treasuries are stored and there. Exactly, mm-hmm. um, to show off yeah. to other to other Greeks what your little corner of the Greek world yeah. is. Yeah. Um, because it's your membership Greeks, card. Yeah, yeah. and we, th- we tend to think of ancient Greeks of following kind of the borders of modern Greece, but that wasn't the case. It no, was much everywhere. more fluid. They were mm-hmm. everywhere, and... Uh, they, they were more closely tied with their local identity in some ways than a Panhellenic and sure. what we would see as a national identity. So uh, so events like these games were an occasion for them to kind of come together and remember that they are all Greeks. They do have something in common totally. with and each it, and other and to reinforce that aspect. And during this age of colonization, this 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 notion is just reinforced here. Mm-hmm. right? It's, it could be a chicken the, chicken or the egg argument, you know. Were they already going out and colonizing? So now the Olympic Games, it may, meant more to participate in the Olympic Games because mm-hmm. you were no longer physically connected or at least within reasonable distance to your community. So do you lose your Greekness, you know, if you find yourself in Magna Graecia, for example? Uh, so, you know, we don't know. It, 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 either or. It's a it, not mutually exclusive, but a sort of a, a symbiosis going on between the games themselves and the age of colonization. Yes. Right? And... It's a bit like a like a World's Fair. You can kind of visit yeah. these places um, by visiting the Panhellenic Games because you will see people from all of these different places in Greece where you will are very unlikely to actually visit totally. physically yeah, visit you, yourself. You usually just see your neighbors. Yeah. That's yeah. about it. And if you're lucky to actually go to one of these yeah. games and you're going to see some people who you've yeah. never seen before. Yeah. Right? And that's a cool thing for anyone. Um, yeah. So celebrate the son of Kronos, line 10 there, yeah, when they have a- arrived amid abundance mm-hmm. at the blessed hearth of Hieron. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so son of Kronos, Zeus, we know that he's all about Xenia. Yep. Is that what this is referencing here? Yeah, sort of. Again, what it doing, it's punching up, it's punching up um, the Syracuse and Tyrant's uh, wealth, right? 
his uh, skill and his excellence, his arete, the sort of hearth and home idea, um, and that it's blessed, right? That mm -hmm. it's a good that it's a good place, right? Um, of course, there would be notions of Zania that are mentioned. And, and then it drops down. It says, uh, who wields his scepter lawfully amid the fruitful fields of Sicily, right? Mm -hmm. So that's one of these colonies that I had mentioned. And that's where this guy's from. Is he's a, a colonial king. This is a son of a colonial king. Right? And that's yeah. and the food theme um, is something that comes up from time to time in myth. Sure. And again, it's that time that they're living in where you're tied more closely to the land and what what it is able to produce for you and so there's a lot more food insecurity and the idea of having these fruitful fields of sicily this sense of abundance which may not resonate with us in our modern age as much um, because we've often lost touch with the production of of our food but to know that there's all kinds of food and it's like having a grocery store around the corner you don't need to worry about um but where your next meal is coming from in Sicily. No. And the idea that, that the earth or that Sicily or that this colony is fruitful and abundant in the presence of this uh, king, right, suggests that there is a sort of a blessing, a blessing that's going on there, right? Um, good things, right, come to good people. Right. And, and and we see in myth just the opposite too, right? Like that's why people are exiled. That's why miasma throws you out of your community. Right. The, the opposite of that is true. Right. If you are a blessed person, then your community is blessed by your presence. So here we have a king. Right. Who is acting it is signified by the lawful uh, execution of the scepter. Right. He's got the mm -hmm. sceptron. Right. It ties him to Zeus's authority and law. And, you know, he's, he's in a man in the midst of abundance. Right. So. This is a good quality, so we'll pay attention. So from the you know they say things like the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree. This is this quality rolls into into Hiron, right? Yes, into his of son. Of course, yes. So we don't really know about Hiron yet because all we really know, what we will know, is that he won this chariot race. So I can't tell you how great he is, and but it's part of the tradition, right? The poet talks about the father, right? That's yeah. Like, well, and it's and it's the idea that, too that your own immortality as a human being comes through your sons and your children as sure. well, right? And yeah, that, and and that continuation, right? And your father's responsible for many things, right? Mm -hmm. So, by by talking by introducing this the the blessed quality of high of Hieron, right, and his his lawful rulership, you're also transferring those same abilities poetically through to the son, Hieron, yeah, yeah. right? Uh, and that you're, you, you can say the same thing is being applied to him, like father, like son. So we start with that introduction, then it jumps into something a little bit different. It just sort of says, um, where are we? He calls, right? He calls the foremost of all excellences. I find this line really interesting mm -hmm. because call is something that I'm familiar with it as in the idea of calling the herd, of yeah. getting rid of the sick and getting rid of the lame and making your herd of animals better. Mm -hmm. um, but here it's almost the opposite. He calls the foremost of the, he chooses mm -hmm. the best of the best yep. and gathers those around him. Now is the he here, do you read that as, as Zeus or as Dinomenes or as both. I go as as dinominies. Okay. Um, oh, you know what? That's a good way of putting it. Actually. I usually read it as Zeus yeah, just that'd... because the way the rest of that line goes. Sure. But it's a, a little ambiguous, I think. Sure. Or, he calls the foremost of all excellences. And and 
the athletic contest, right, is mm -hmm. about arete. So when you see the word excellence, you're you're looking at arete there, right? So again, the vernacular to ancient uh, this is an Epinician poem, but Pindar is using that same type of of um, uh, mythopoetic language, right? When he's talking about excellence, virtue, right? Mm -hmm. Well, that's a bad thing, but skill and excellence, right? For mm -hmm. arete, that's what we'll say, right? Uh, the, and he, the for, yeah, he calls the foremost of all excellences, and he is made resplendent too by music's choicest strains, because now they're talking about the performance of music in the king's hall, let's say, right, um, as a as a guest and as a host, right. Such songs as we men often sing in playful fashion around. His friendly tables. And if I'm recalling correctly, in the ancient Olympics, uh, music and uh, recitation and, and an literature event. was yeah. an event. Yeah. And that was part of the competition. So when you see that table idea, too, again, you're, you're pulled into the concept of Zania, the guest host relations, relations, you know, uh, relation protocol. But from its peg, take down the Dorian lyre. Again, just a style type of lyre, right? Type of harp. And then we have the grace of Pisa, which is referring to Olympia here, and Pharaonikos. Who's Pharaonikos? Iron's horse. Oh, everybody's <laughs> got a name nowadays. Yeah. And okay. it means, if you look at the Greek, it means bringer of victory. So that's a really good name for the horse. Yeah, it is. Yeah, Nike, yeah. Nikos. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, what's the next line? Have placed your mind beneath the spell of sweetest thoughts. Right? Well, that's the function of the singing of poetry, right? That was just referenced there in the house of the king, recalling how besides the Alphasis or the Alphaeus, he rushed. That's the river, right? Yep. Next to Olympia, giving his body strength and ungoated to the race and so infused his lord yeah. with mastery. The horse was so eager to win, he did not need to be whipped or prodded no. to go fast. No, um, he just does it. It's, it's natural. Yeah. Magical. The Syracusan king whose joy is horses. Yeah, absolutely. The prestigious event at Olympia is the chariot race. It's the mm -hmm. four-horse chariot race, the Tithrapon. Uh, this might be a Sonorous race, according to one of the footnotes, but we'll yeah. look at it when we get to that section. And, um, you know, this is this is the premier event, right? Although uh, I'm sure people would say that the premier event at Olympia would more likely be the stadium or the foot race. But... It all depends on your point of view. Well, if you're a rich and, aristocrat, you want to get in the horse race. Yes. Right? And at Olympia, given its mythological history, uh -huh. the horse race is very important. Well, that's, and I'm ready to get on with some myth here. Do so it. do you think we should read the next section? Do it. Right for him shines fame in the brave-hearted settlement of Lydian Pelops, with whom the mighty earth holder fell in love, Poseidon, when... From the pure cauldron, Clotho took him out, his shoulder marked with gleaming ivory. Truly, wonders are many, yet doubtless too men's talk, tales embellished beyond the true account with lies of cunning pattern, sheet and lead astray. And charm, which fashions all but pleases mortals, by adding her authority makes even what outstrips belief be frequently believed. But future days remain the wisest witnesses. It is fitting for a man to say good things about the gods, for so the blame is less. Son of Tantalus, contrary to earlier accounts, I shall proclaim how when your father called the gods to that most orderly of feasts at his dear Sipolis, offering them a banquet in return, then it was that he of the splendid trident snatched you up, 
His mind, subdued by longing and on golden horses, brought you aloft to the house of Augustus Zeus, where at a later time Ganymede came as well to render Zeus the selfsame service. But when you disappeared and those who sought you long failed to return you to your mother, at once some envious neighbor told a tale in secret, how into water brought to the fullest boil by fire they cut you with a knife, limb by limb, and then among the tables as the final course they portioned out your flesh and ate. For me, however, it is impossible to call any of the blessed gods a glutton. I stand apart. Often a lack of profit falls to slanderers. But truly, if the watchers of Olympus ever held a mortal man in honor, Tantalus was he. But all in vain, for he could not digest his great good fortune. In his greed he gained excess of ruin, for the father hung over him a mighty rock, and being always eager to cast it from his head, he strays exiled from merriment. He has this helpless life of lasting toil, a fourth trial with three others, since he cheated the immortals by sharing with his drinking friends and age mates the nectar and ambrosia with which they had made him free from decay. But if in any action any man hopes to elude divinity, he is in error. All right, so that's the second part of the myth. Mm-hmm. And, or of the poem, rather, and the first part where we really get into the myth of Pelops. Well, another version. Yes, I was yeah. just going to say, a, different, a yeah. different version. It's it, not clear at the very beginning which version Pindar's talking about, and I find that that, that quite interesting mm-hmm. when, he refer, when he refers to the cauldron. There's uh, two possibilities, yeah. two versions that he might be going with here, but then he kind of surprises us Absolutely. With, uh, with his version. Yeah, I like his version because it suits his audience. Well, it will surprise his audience. It is... um, Flattering to the gods. It's flattering to the gods. It's flattering to to, um, uh, Tantalus, in a sense. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then um, also, of course, to Pelops. Pelops. It it recasts uh, Pelops in a very different light, right? Mm -hmm. Um, It's... it's, um, What's the word I'm looking for? It's this this version redeeming. It is redeeming, yeah. This version is predicated on the audience's notion of the less than glorious uh, traditional myth. I just call that one the traditional yeah. myth. Although I think they're both traditional myths, so I don't. Want, but that would be the traditional myth. So they 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 they're the audience is primed, right? Yeah. So Pindar starts with um, saying that the mighty earth holder fell in love. Poseidon. Yeah. So when Pelops emerged from this cauldron, mm-hmm. Poseidon fell in love with him. Mm-hmm. And the cauldron, um, it Clotho is the one that takes him out. She's one of the fates. Yep. And the cauldron here could be one of two interpretations. Mm-hmm. And at this point, if we're just listening to this for the first time, we aren't. We don't necessarily know what way he's going with this. So it could be referring to when the baby is washed for the first time and Mm -hmm. that this gleaming ivory is a birthmark. Or it could be referring to when he is pulled from the cauldron and reconstituted into a person with the ivory shoulder uh, from the other version. Mm -hmm. So I kind of like that... um, he doesn't come right the very, out and say yeah, it. Yeah, he doesn't come right out and <laughs> say it. Yeah. We, of course, know because we're familiar with this story and with and with this work of literature. But, you know, I, I just like to imagine if you're listening to it for the very first time and here he's kind of, kind of like, oh, like you're probably still expecting maybe the version that you're more familiar with. Partially. I also think that he does signal to the audience um, which version, well, how, 
what changes he's, he decide he wants to make, and that is he's leaning Thanks. towards that this uh, cauldron is in fact a uh, first bathing of a newborn infant, uh, mm-hmm. of Pelops as a as a birth scenario. Clotho is the sister fate, the Clotho Lochysis and Atropos. Clotho is the spinner. So this would be the first. This makes more sense in the context of a newborn infant whose life has yet been measured nor cut. Uh, so I think that's something that we can consider. Plus, what's new, if we're just to sort of look at the traditional myth, the, the inclusion of Poseidon right away at the beginning is a pretty powerful yeah. clue that he's going to be responsible for some alterations in the, he's gonna the, have a the myth. So and you can see there that, you know, Poseidon, he fell in love with... Mm-hmm. Pelops, and I put a little heart next to that line in my... With little line. initials yes, in it? Yes, yes. P plus P. P plus P, <laughs> yeah. And he just looked upon him and said, oh, that's, you know, I'm in love. He's the one for me. Right. Yeah. And then that, so when it does talk about what it says, uh, gleaming ivory shoulder, mm-hmm. like, you know, in the traditional myth, that's, you know, the ivory shoulder that they're talking about. But here, in this one, in this case, more than likely, in the a poetic birthmark. language, a birthmark, clean... Clean skin, white skin, who knows, right? That's yeah. the mark of beauty, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it says, truly wonders are many, yet doubtless to me, uh, two men's talk, tales embellished beyond a true account, with lies and a cunning pattern, cheat and lead astray. Even though sections there is just talking about, you know, you know, people start talking. Yeah. You know? People, the version that we know is yeah. people's talk. Right. It's just it's, people talking. People are and they have a tendency to embellish, right? And sometimes those embellishments aren't exactly flattering and they're often no. based on you know a jealousy let me put it that way Some jealousy and of other people's successes i like what he says at line 35 it mm-hmm. is fitting for a man to say good things about the gods so the blame is less and when yeah. you think about it yeah that's kind of obvious you want to say good things about the gods mm-hmm. um and he's de- clearly signaling to us that um the other version of the myth is not really appropriate and especially at olympia no which as we keep saying the connections with zeus and pelops absolutely right if this is going to serve as some sort of archetype for later athletes to look towards uh in some sort of pattern mythological pattern the story of pelops right in this chariot race you want to have something that is edifying something glorious something noble right so you know, Pindar really picked a, a difficult, heroic character to engage with, mm-hmm. right? And uh, it was probably no small task to to construct this ode and to overcome that hurdle. But that, again, is something that lyric poets do and something that epic poets do very often, too. Homer frequently tells us about the nobility of a character in contrast to a great villainous or evil character. So... The epic tradition is no stranger, nor is the lyric tradition no stranger to this idea of presenting contrasting qualities. You, if you have a really good or noble man, you also would want to understand a, a vile, evil, treacherous man, right? Greek poetry and the, their holistic sort of logic, right, about harm and hurt and love and hate, that's the way that they operate. So there's no reason why that wouldn't translate through epic and be picked up by by Pindar and pulled into lyric poetry as well. So you have these different images that they are attempting to reconcile, right? We talked about the reconciliation of opposites. Well, here it, here it is in lyric poetry. Two opposite and conflicting traditions are crashing together, right? And the audience is going to figure out 
What's, Kindar what's has a simple solution to what really happened, mm -hmm. and it's really quite clever how mm -hmm. he pieces everything together. Oh yeah, and still accounts to for what happens to Tantalus and Pelops as the myth goes on. So mm -hmm. he doesn't change it completely, but he changes the underlying yeah. story. So he says that son of Tantalus, Pelops, contrary to earlier accounts, I shall proclaim. There I is. have the truth. I know what it is, and mm -hmm. I will tell you. This is almost sounding like a modern day press release. Yeah, it is. <laughs> alternative, alternative facts. Exactly. <laughs> uh, Fakenews.com, Breitbart. <laughs> Pay attention. Son of Tantalus, contrary to earlier accounts, I shall proclaim. I, for me, that's the real moment of revealed truth, right? He's danced around a few things. He's set up the characters and we're getting ready for, you know, bait and switch here, right? Yeah. And now here it comes, right? This is it. When your father, Tantalus, yes. called the gods to that most orderly of feasts at his dear Syphilis. So it yes. was an orderly feast. There was nothing, 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 nothing askew, chaotic, nothing, okay. nothing amiss with no. that feast, mm -hmm. right? Like it's, you know. Well, the, uh, sorry, I just want to say yeah. Tantalus does have a tradition of, of feasting multiple times and being in the proximity of the gods. So mm -hmm. this is just no one off, right? Yeah. This is, they have an ongoing relationship. Usually mortals are uh, separate, uh, you know. Uh, from the gods, alienated from the divine realm. But this guy has a special privilege, right? Mm -hmm. It doesn't really go into what Tantalus' special privilege is, but he just happens to be hanging out with the gods very often, right? That is, for me, problematic. But let's move on. Yeah. Um, offering them a banquet in return, then it was that, oh, well, and I should just stop there too, mm -hmm. a banquet in return. So again, that gets into this reciprocity. He yeah. dines with the gods and then the gods he offers dine with them him. Vice, yeah. you know, back it, and forth. Yeah, Robert Graves talks about how uh, Zeus would bring him up to Mount Olympus to have a feast. And now here, it's you come to my place, and I go to your place type thing, right? Mm -hmm. You come down to Syphilis and have a, have a, a feast. And here's what really happened to Pelops, why mm -hmm. he disappeared. Then it was that he of the splendid trident snatched you up. Bang. His mind subdued by longing and on golden horses brought you aloft to the house of August Zeus. Mm -hmm. Where, by the way, Ganymede comes later. Oh, I love that part. <laughs> yeah, that little aside. That, yeah. Oh, and by the way, Ganymede. But, yeah, well, when I read that, I went, by the way, Zeus does it too, but Poseidon did it first. first yeah. All right? So that this is a victory for Poseidon in some way, right? Uh, they're uh, mortal paramours, right? They have uh, yeah. objects of attraction. Ganymede becomes a, 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 a cup bear. bear, but we kind of yeah. put that in quotation sure, marks. Sure, he's a lover. Yeah. 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 And uh, in, in this case, Pelops is as well. Yeah. Now, it doesn't, you know, we can only speculate about ages and lengths of time and all that sort of yeah. thing. So that's not it's, really. It's it, myth. It's, it's myth. myth. Yeah. Um, but then after he disappeared, Pindar mm -hmm. says, every, people started talking. And then when they couldn't find you, they started coming up with stories about what happened to you. Well, totally. And an envious neighbor, somebody unkind, maliciously yeah. started this Jealous. rumor yeah. that your father mm -hmm. cut you up and. Yeah, that, served you out. Yeah, the, the father that killed him. Yeah. yeah, but that some envious this, neighbor. This version exists simply yeah. out of human spite and malice. Absolutely right, and and that's based on the great wealth and excellence of Tantalus's house, mm -hmm. right, and his close proximity with the gods. Your 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 intimate connection to the divine comes at the cost of a sort of exile in the human realm, mm, right? Yeah, that's a good point. You know, as, as he drew, draws, draws closer to the gods or has drawn closer to the gods and so on, had a relationship with them, the natural human proclivity to someone who is successful and so on would be to be jealous and envious. And then mm -hmm. the, he becomes isolated from his natural human community, right? And they start to cook up these 
pernicious lies about him, right? Or mm-hmm. these tales, anyways, to explain his sudden happiness. Something stinks in the state of Denmark, right? What's going on over there, right? Um, I then, love that. I love that part. You know, it's a great section. Mm-hmm. And then Pindar goes on again to remind us once more that there is no profit in saying anything slanderous about the gods. No. And um, to call the gods a glutton, like to have any ill reflection. And the interesting thing is that by his insistence yeah. on it, mm-hmm. he's also emphasizing it. And there mm-hmm. is a rhetorical term for that that I cannot remember right now, but one of our listeners probably mm-hmm. does. He does say I in know. here, so he's speaking yeah. in first person. This is the but, but, poetic voice. Yes, but as he keeps coming back to this, mm-hmm. it just reinforces. It's it's like saying, I'm not going to talk about that really bad thing you did the other day. Mm-hmm. But I am. But but, but, but I just have. But I have yeah. just brought yeah. it up in everybody's mind by mentioning it. Yes. Like that. So there is a little. So Pindar, I think, is being a little clever here. Um, this is the line about fifty-four or so, fifty-three. Mm-hmm. For me, however, it is impossible. Yeah, to call any of the blessed gods a glutton. Yeah. Yeah. I stand apart. Yeah. yeah. And and I like I like it's it's a, a kind of a I like the way that you framed it, and it's also the words of a pious man. Right. Because he knows that um, he doesn't want to say those things because they could jeopardize mm-hmm. uh, he, he, in the eyes of the gods. Right. Mm-hmm. So I stand apart from that story, those lies. Right. That tale. That's not the true tale. And when you want truth, you go to a poet. Everybody knows that. Right. Yeah. They have the muses helping them. Exactly. <laughs> Often a lack of profit falls to slanderers. Right. And, yeah. and again, that stresses his success as an Epinition poet. And he does a very good job at it. He's made a living at it. And he's he's advanced his career and the careers of his friends. And he's saying, if what I was saying, you know, is it all slanderous? I wouldn't be successful, mm-hmm. but I am. So it reinforces the piety and the veracity of my claims here. But truly, if the watchers on Olympus ever held a mortal man in honor, right? He, it was he, Tantalus, right? Is that the part where we, so, we end there? No, we went a little bit further. Oh, good. So, but I like that. Yeah. Because it, look what he's saying there. He's saying Tantalus was blessed by the gods and he has the highest portion of honor because everyone's looking at him in, with, with revulsion, mm-hmm. right? That the audience would would have a, an image of Tantalus as a murderer. Yeah. Right? And so now he's saying, no, it's not. Right? In fact, blah, 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 blah. And right? I like this bit because mm-hmm. Pindar still has to come up with, well, why does Tantalus get mm-hmm. punished? And because uh, you Did, can stretch the story in some directions, but you can't yeah, stretch it too far. Your audience isn't going to buy it. Yeah. 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 And it says Tantalus was he, but all in vain, um, but all in vain, for he could not digest his great good fortune. It says digest. I love that. It ties in perfectly with the version, the punishment that we know that yeah. Tantalus is going to get in the afterworld about eating. Well, yeah, because usually the punishment fits the crime, according to Greek thought, right? Yeah. But in this particular one, that is not the crime. But yet the punishment that is being, well, the words that are being used here are about consumption. And it still is about consumption if we look at the new crime. But before we do, in his greed, he he gained gained excess of ruin for the father. Then it goes on to talk about what Zeus did to him. 
So if greed is a part of his crime against yes. the gods. Yep. And greed, I think you can tie to hubris as well. Yeah. It's the, the, uh, the previous line where it just says uh, Tantalus was he, right? Talked mm -hmm. about how great he was. Then it says, but all in vain, right? All that honor that he had, that, that association that he had with the gods was all in vain. For he, Tantalus, the mortal man, could not digest his great good fortune. It means he couldn't be, couldn't leave it alone, right? Couldn't just let it digest, let it become part, right, of, of who he is, a sustenance of, of his sort of personality, right, his own good fortune. And, but that is exactly the nature of the crime. And that's what makes Tantalus so fascinating for me. Because if you, they say, like, what type of person is he? He's often known as one of the great tricksters, right, cunning, right, manipulative, um, tied in some traditions to Odysseus himself, characters like Autolycus, Odysseus, Hermes, all these names sort of come to mind when you're talking about cunning or Matus or so on. And Tantalus is right up there, right up there with Sisyphus as well, right? The great tricksters of the um, classical tradition. And so he, with that in mind, you know, if you were someone who regularly kept the association or kept company with the gods, you'd see how they act, mm -hmm. right? And you'd see what they were like. And then after a while, you know, you might question the nature of their divinity because they are anthropomorphic, right? They do look like men and women, and more importantly, they act like men and women. So you see them in their their best of times, perhaps, right, during a um, during a feast, right? Mm -hmm. But you also see them, you know, do some kind of nasty things to each other on occasion too, right? They are able to tell lies and so on and so forth, right? And there's something about that idea, right? They say like he wanted to challenge the omniscience of the gods. Well, it doesn't say anything about that in here, right? And that's just sort of, you know, what people would say when they consider the traditional myth. But again, it's about like that thinking that you're like a god, right? Like Ate, right? Taking that Ate is the thought and then Hubris is the action. Yeah. And, so, and then the crime is translating those things into three stages, right? Is thinking in a certain way and then acting in a certain way, right? Outside of a defined box. That's that's like what injustice would be, right? Or justice, right? Well, and he has um, he has a couple of different punishments here. Yeah. His first punishment is kind of interesting. In his greed, in his greed, he gained excessive ruin. Yeah. Um, for the, for the father, and that's capitalized. So we know that's referring to Zeus. Yeah. Hung over him a mighty rock, yeah. and being always eager to cast it from his head, he strays exiled from merriment. Yeah, he can't be happy. He's totally preoccupied by this Damoclean blade that hangs above his mm -hmm. head, right? That at any moment can can cause his destruction, right? It's something that only he can see, right? It's been placed above him, and and, and living in that, living with that, it's. It places him almost like it says exiled from merriment. He just can't be happy anymore, right? Mm -hmm. And he's all, I'm just picturing someone who maybe stays constantly in motion and moves around from one place to another, right? To stay restive in any one spot to bring moment well, of happiness. Right? And all of his fortune doesn't bring him happiness. Yeah. I So I see it as he's needs to be constantly acquiring. Like his greed isn't satisfied and mm -hmm. he always wants more and he's always trying to... Uh, trying to be happy that way mm -hmm. because Pindar tells us his big crime he cheated the immortals yeah. by sharing with his drinking friends and age mates the nectar and ambrosia mm -hmm. with which they had made him free from decay so the yeah. gods had actually made him immortal that was the kind of relationship he had with them or yeah. free or free from free, free from decay there was kind decay. of sure 
there's nuances yeah, to I don't think they made him anything. I think he was stealing some of their food, and as a result of eating the divine food, we're talking about digestion here. It prolongs your life. It beautifies oh. you. Oh, okay. Right? So, that's so he stole some of their food, right? And and he was, you know, that, that's a crime. God, you can't steal from the gods and eat it. So that's evidence that he's that he's partaken of the yeah. of the food, I've, and he gave some to his buddies. I've, I've always read that that the they there mm-hmm. as referring to the immortals that mm-hmm. the immortals had given him some of this that and then he had shared it with his friends. Mm-hmm. But yeah, either way, mm-hmm. he takes it and he shares it with his friends. Yeah, it's like a symposium, right? And and what's he do? He gives him he gives him nectar and ambrosia, and that's the food of the gods. Yeah, and you can't do that. It's part of the divine apparatus. It's got to stay up there, right? If they gave you a special favor, not, right? It is not Ferrero Rocher. It's not Ferrero Rocher's? No, it's not. Contrary to their advertising. Exactly, <laughs> right? So, he's jeopardized himself with his with his greed, right? And his and his own curiosity too has damned mm-hmm. him in a way, right? Yeah. So he has this. Uh, what is it, what, what are they referring to it as? This mighty rock, right? That's yeah. Hung above his head, mm-hmm. right? Forever, right? Mm-hmm. And it and and as I pointed out before, it still fits in with the punishment that we know that he gets in. Or most myths have him getting in the underworld about being tantalized with the food and the drink. Yeah, well, because his crime has is, something to do with food and drink. Exactly. By sharing with his drinking friends, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, the fourth... It, it does notice... It, there is a rather cryptic line, uh, line 60, that says the fourth trial sure. of three yeah. others. That references the other versions. The, it references the other crimes. There are some other crimes that are attributed to Tantalus, specifically um, uh, some things about Zeus. He apparently stole a golden mastiff that belonged to Zeus. That's another crime. Okay. He stole some of the food of the gods. That was another crime. He... Uh, he, he's, he, you know, there's a number of sort of yeah. perceived crimes that are going on here, right? And he's giving them some sort of number. Um, but yeah, he's, he's free, made free from decay by the consumption of this divine food. But if in any action, any man hopes to elude divinity, he is in error. You can't, can't do it. Fate. You, you know, can't the, gods, the gods, yeah, the, the Zeus might not be omniscient or omnipotent, but he's, a lot more omniscient and a lot more omnipotent than most people give him credit for, especially a normal human like this guy. Well, an exceptional human, let me put it that way. But and, and whenever I see that error, right, I think Hamartia, mm. right. I'm thinking about the the error, right. There's the that's the words of uh, tragedy, right. Your thought, your action, your error, right. Mm-hmm. Those types of things, right. Your ate, your hubris, your Hamartia. Right? Okay. Well. Yeah. This is a good myth, but where's Pelops? Yeah. So he's not there yet. Well, where where do you think he is right now? Well, why don't we read and find out? All right. Bingo. Therefore, the immortal sent his son back once again to dwell among the short lived race of men. And when toward the time of his youth's flowering, his chin and jaw were darkening with soft hair, he set his thoughts upon the ready marriage that might be his by wresting fair famed Hippodamia from her father, the king of Pisa. Drawing near the white-flecked sea, alone in dark of night, he hailed the loud, resounding god of the trident, who close by the young man's feet revealed himself. To him he said, Come, if in any way the Cyprian's affectionate gifts lay claim, Poseidon, to gratitude, then shackle Onimaeus's brazen spear, dispatch me from, dispatch me on the swiftest of all chariots. To Alice, draw me near to mastery. For thirteen men, all suitors he has killed, and so puts off the marriage of his daughter. Great risk does not place its hold on cowards. 
Since we must die, why sit in darkness and to no purpose coddle an inglorious old age without a share of all that's noble? But for me, this contest is a task that I must undertake. May you bring to fulfillment that which I hold dear. Thus he spoke, and the words that he laid hold of were not without effect. Exalting him, the god gave him a golden chariot and a team of tireless winged horses. He took strong Oinimaeus down and took the maiden as his bride, begetting six sons, leaders eager to excel. But now he has a share in splendid acts of sacrifice, reclining by the course of Altheus, in his well-tended tomb beside the altar that many strangers visit. Fame gleams far and wide from the Olympic races of Pelops, where the speed of feet contends and utmost strength courageous to bear toil. All right. Uh, yeah, so... Yeah. Science, no more Daddy back. misbehaves and the son gets a punishment too. Mm -hmm. And that is to be booted out of Olympus, to be sent away from the gods and returned to being a mortal man. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it says therefore. Therefore, right? That, that's linked. Mm -hmm. He was an heir. Therefore, the immortal sent his son back once again to dwell among the race of short-lived men. Yeah. Right? I think that's that's interesting, too, because just previously they were talking about longevity, right? They were talking about that Tantalus himself was free from decay, that now that he's been deposed or removed by the gods, um, his son is, is delivered, right? It's as it should be. He's brought back, brought back to Earth. Um, and, um, uh, you know, he's, he's, I just like this to say that it's as it should be right, mm -hmm. at that particular point. <clears throat> and so he grows up and, or he grows older and he's ready to marry and he sets his sight on Hippodamia. Yep. Hippodamia, the daughter, the beautiful daughter of, of Onimaus, the king of Pisa. And we, and we just uh, tied that right back to uh, what Pindar was saying at the beginning when he referred to Olympia as Pisa. Yep. Um, so we've got that little mm -hmm. connection there echoing. Mm -hmm. um, so how is he going to do this? How is know. he going to manage to arrest the fair-famed Hippodamia from her father? Well, it's, again, it's a classic heroic trope, right? Just the hero saves the maiden, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, this this hero, it's time for him to become, he, well, he wants to become uh, a husband, right? The father. And uh, he has a potential bride in mind, but there's a problem, right? It's not as easy as that. No. You can't just go knocking on the palace gates and say, I'm interested in your daughter. Here's a dowry and get it done like traditional hero, hero or mythological uh, marriages as a negotiation between two men. The problem here is Onimaus is. Tell Nasty. us a little bit about Onimaus. Well, he set up a contest that whoever beats him in a chariot race gets to win his daughter. And he has very good horses. And mm -hmm. so far, um, as Pelops mentions um, in his speech to Poseidon, Oinemaeus has killed 13 potential suitors. Yeah. But just before we get to that, um, I just wanted to point out that the first person or the first thing he goes to is he goes down to the ocean. Love that and part and consults Poseidon. And it reminds me so much of that scene in the Iliad with Achilles. Calling for his mother. Calling for his mother from, mm -hmm. from, from the sea. Yep. And he says to Poseidon, come if in any way the Cyprian's affection. The Cyprian, of course, is Aphrodite. Mm -hmm. So if any way you're in love with me, uh, Poseidon, then 
shackle Oinimaeus's brazen spear. Yes. So stop his bronze spear from uh-huh. reaching me and dispatch me on the swiftest of all chariots. And of course, Poseidon is a god of horses. Yep. And if you want immortal, swiftest possible horses, um, Signs Poseidon's man. a guy. Yeah. So again, it all god. ties perfectly into this mm-hmm. Him to the victor of a horse race. Totally, yeah. Like he uses the epic language, like you talked about, just an evocation scene, right? A summoning or a prayer. Uh, he evokes uh, his um, uh, mentor, lover, mm-hmm. Poseidon, right? And uh, says, you know, if I have ever pleased you in the past, and if you, you know, this is the case, then do something for me now. Uh, based again, this idea of reciprocity, like the Romans would call it, what do up days, you know, this contractual yeah. legal obligation or whatever. But here, the, the Greeks do the very same thing. And, uh, and and he listens, right? Well, and that's and that's Poseidon interesting listens. too because that is their relationship with the gods. Yeah. Is that it's it's not this idea that there are these benevolent beings who are going to give them all kinds of things just for asking nicely. Mm-hmm. It's that you have to uphold, you have to do things for the gods, you have to uphold yeah. their rituals and that kind of thing, and then they will do things for sure. you. And yeah, that is that. That is a great point. And there really is no guarantee, but you know... You, but you, you can you, ask. You can ask, <laughs> right? Yeah. So what he does, he goes near the sea and he asks the god of the trident, and I love it in the sense because it says, uh, God of the trident, who close by the young man's feet revealed himself, mm-hmm. right? Um, so he, it's, it's not just throwing a prayer out into the wind, right? He manifests Poseidon. Poseidon is there. They mm-hmm. see each other, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, as, 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 um, plainly as Achilles spots Thetis rising up out of the gray water, right? Here we see Pelops and Poseidon. Right? Mm-hmm. This is the beginning of it, right? At the young man's feet. He says, he, he, to, uh, to him he came, right? But then you get a direct address. You got a direct address. Come. This is Pelop's words, right? Come mm-hmm. if in any way the Cyprian's affectionate gifts lay claim, just like what you said, ties him right into Aphrodite, right? And it says, Poseidon, gratitude, then shackle his brazen spear, right? I love that idea. Yeah. And he says, why? Yep. Because 13 men, all of the suitors, he's killed. Yeah. And so he's putting off the marriage of his daughter. Yeah, that's And weird. then I love this next line that he mm-hmm. says. Because mm-hmm. to me, this summarizes the hero's attitude. Okay. Yeah. Since we must die, mm-hmm. why sit in darkness and to no purpose coddle an inglorious old age without a share of all that's noble? Mm-hmm. The hero would rather go out young in a blaze of <laughs> fame and glory mm-hmm. than to sit around like what we know happens to Jason. I always imagine yeah. Jason, yeah, Jason in this. Yeah. Sit around by the side of some road. Yeah. Um, on the beat beach on somewhere. The head with a rotting beam from yeah, the yeah. ship. Yeah. But yeah, just to fade away into oblivion where nobody knows who you are or what you did. In and glorious he's like, old age. Yeah, we're mm-hmm. going to die. Mm-hmm. So let's yeah. put all our cards on the table. And it's and that is very much the hero. The hero wants the chaos, the do. glory, the fame. And they, That's what they're after. And it's also tied in as far as motivation factors are concerned for the heroic enterprise. This is called the heroic enterprise, by the way. Mm-hmm. That is a great risks. Uh, great risk does not place its hold on cowards, right? Mm-hmm. So this is considered a brave act. Right. And one of the things that that I that I encounter a lot is this concept called the heroic decision and heroic decisions are are 
different than our decisions, obviously, right? And a lot of people say things like, well, why the hell, after we found out that 12 other people or potentially 13, 13 other people, you know, went to their ends, other heroes perhaps, who knows, or other princes, right? Went to their untimely end at the at the pointy end of, of Onimaus's spear. Would he say, yeah, you know what, that Hippodamia, I'm still going to go after her. Why not find some other girl, right? But no, the heroic decision is different. The heroic, the heroic decision is motivated by, of course, Kleos, right? And bravery and courage and nobility and all those other superlatives that we're going to throw out there. But their decision-making process is one that is deeper, right? When they decide to make that choice, right, it's going to have repercussions. Right? And it can become, it, be, it can come with death or it can come with victory. Right? Mm -hmm. We make decisions every day. You know the, all that thing people are talking about? Oh, decision fatigue. You mm -hmm. heard about that yeah. phrase, right? Because our world, we're so filled with these mundane decisions, thousands and thousands of them every day. You know, what is it going to be? Is it going to be this shirt or this pants? Or, or is it going to have a you know, whatever, tuna fish sandwich or a ham sandwich? You know, so those decisions don't really have any repercussions beyond ourselves or a few people or whatever. Very rarely do we ever make or are forced into a heroic decision. One that has repercussions for ourselves, for our family, for our community, and for even in the heroic context, the cosmos itself, right? The, the world is not going to come unraveled because I have a tuna fish sandwich on, on, on whole wheat, right? Uh, but if I don't, right, and I'm a hero and I don't engage the heroic decision, the world will come not to an end, but chaos is introduced, right? And Pelops presents it as not even a choice. He says, no. I must undertake. Like, yeah. I'm doing this. Yeah. Poseidon, it's going to be up to you to make sure I, I, I succeed. Mm -hmm. But kind of one way or the other, I'm doing this. Yeah, that, that, but for me, this contest yeah. is a task that I must undertake. Mm -hmm. Right? And, and you're like, I... May you bring it to yeah, fulfillment. exactly. Right? Now, what is, it, what is it when we look at the relationships between gods and heroes and how they operate, especially in epic? And then this is lyric poetry, which is very similar in many of the constructions. The idea of when a god and a hero work in concert, what do they achieve? Their aristeia, their greatest moment, right? So here we're, we're looking at the same situation. We're setting the groundwork for another aristeia, another great epic moment, right? Of the, the, the synchronous act of a god and a mortal hero working for victory, right? Thus he spoke. And Poseidon doesn't fail him. Poseidon no. gives him a golden chariot and a team of tireless winged horses. Yeah, wow. Incredible. Onimaus has got great horses, but they're only normal. Like mortal, mortal. Regular. Yeah, regular. Horses. They're just like a really good breed. And, they're, you know, and he's yeah. a really good spearman and a really good charioteer. But right away, bang, Poseidon win, gives you the winning hand, right? He gives you... Uh, uh, Immortal horses, immortal winged horses, and a tireless, and a tireless, tireless. And, a, and a golden chariot, mm -hmm. right? That, you know, can just zip along the water with great speed. And then it's with these um, that Pelops takes down strong Oinimaeus. Yeah. Um, and this is interesting to point out exactly the part of the story. That's not in that's there? That's not there. <laughs> yeah. Which is Good. the story, <laughs> which is the story that Pelops bribes. Mm -hmm. The charioteer, uh, Oinomace's charioteer, Myrtilus, mm. mm. to replace the axle pins with wax sure. pins. So that as the wheel spins around, it'll heat up and the you wax will melt and chariot. the wheels fall off yeah. and he dies in the crash. Yeah. So that's kind of the version that we might be most familiar with. Mm -hmm. Does not even come into this. No. And you know why? 
because this is the Olympic Games, yes. and you do not want to cheat in the Olympic Games. Sure, you don't, and the audience knows about it. The audience yeah. knows about it, but he just leaves yeah, just it out. Leave it right completely. out because it doesn't suit. There's the no, thing. no, yeah. no, no. No mention. No mention of cheating. Because no. if he were to bring up this idea of Myrtleus and cheating, mm -hmm. then he's undone all of the glory that he has just laid down on Hieron. Yep. That's that's got it. Yeah. Right? Absolutely. And because it, it does just say he took strong Onimaus down. Yeah. Right? Okay. So you can, you know, that is implicit with you death. You can do it however. Likely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, in the dust or something yeah. like that. Right? And he took Hippodamiah as his bride having six sons, mm -hmm. leaders eager to excel. And that was a fast forward, huh? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so we get to the chariot race. He beats Onimaus, and then he wins. And then the next thing we're talking about is six sons. Well, then it speeds up even yeah. faster because yeah, then we're talking about how he's dead. Yeah. Now he has a share in splendid acts of sacrifice, mm -hmm. reclining by the course of the Alphaeus in his well-tended tomb. Yes. So he is now worshipped as... At Olympia. At Olympia as a, as a hero. Yes, and he is. Hero shrines or hero on yep. are big. His is called very the Palapion. Yeah, it's been it was it before this this one around the time of the composition of this uh, lyric poem uh, would still be the type of tomb that he's mentioning here, the Palapion that um, many of you would know, say from doing like a Google image search on the Palapion, for example, at Olympia, was built by Alexander the Great or Philip mm -hmm. Philip of Macedon actually, but it was built over that tomb. So it's the same spot. It's just more grandiose looking. But that would be a hero cult tomb. It would be a mound with some stones, that type of thing, right? And uh, these were all over Greece for oh. heroes. Just basically anywhere where there's a hero yeah. story attached to it. Everyone's got But one. here is Pelops, mm -hmm. who is now at the site. He's beside the river. And we just talked about how the, how the horse, the winning horse, had been yeah. rushing along beside the river. Mm -hmm. Now we have this image of Pelops laying beside the river. Being there and being present for these races. Yeah, he's buried at the spot of his greatest victory. Yes. Right? The, the victory that, that will kind of define his kingship. And that victory is perpetuated mm -hmm. by... Every guy that does it. Every guy that does it, especially mm -hmm. a guy like Heron, Heron right. who wins it. Right. He becomes... Yeah. They become... Well, actually, he becomes... They're tied together like proto-charioteers. Yeah. This is the first... This is the, the, the beginning of it, right? So when Heron does it and every other competitor at Olympia do it, they're mirroring this activity they they're become, reenacting they're it. reenacting and, and that's the basis of ritual yes. right a reenactment right and it's informed by myth of course right so they're they're involved in this reenactment in this in this activity right mm -hmm. uh the olympic races and but you notice how it does it talks about the olympic races of pelops and it says where the speed of feet contends and the mm -hmm. utmost strength courageous to bear toil because the prestige event and the common man's event are two different things. Mm -hmm. Olympia is all, is known, of course, for the great chariot races that are there. And when you do it, you are doing what we just described. But everybody runs in the state. Yeah. Right? Everybody runs the uh, foot race. And that still honors the hero cult. It still honors the hero Pelops, your your, your feet pounding the earth. Yeah, right? as you, you're as still you reenacting run. that. Yeah, you're reenacting that. With your toil, you bear the toil and courage throughout the rest uh, says throughout the rest of life, the one who wins is something. Something different. We haven't got that far yet. Yeah. <laughs> You're getting ahead of us. Yeah. So why don't we read the rest of the poem and see how it? Yeah. How did it did you up? finish with honeyed calm when you? Uh, no, we oh, finished okay. with uh, with bear toil. Oh, okay, cool. 
Throughout the rest of life, the one who wins enjoys a honeyed calm, at least as regards gains. That good, however, which comes day by day is always uppermost for every mortal. As for me, to crown that man with music in the Aeolian mode, a tune fit for a horseman, is my duty. I am confident that no host exists who can lay claim to deeper knowledge of noble ends or yet to greater power, at least among those living now, to be embellished with loud folds of song. Having this as his special care, a guardian god takes thought for your ambitions, Hieron. Unless he should leave suddenly, I hope to honour a still sweeter victory with a swift chariot, discovering a path of words to lend assistance as I approach the sunny hill of Kronos. Now for me the muse fosters in her reserves of force the mightiest arrow. In different matters different men show greatness, but the utmost peak belongs to kings. Extend your graze no further. May your lot be to walk on high throughout the time you have. May mine be to keep company with those who win on each occasion, foremost in poetic skill among Greeks everywhere. So in closing, Pindar brings the hymn back to where it was at the beginning, reminding us why he's told us this, this story and the glory that comes with winning with winning the races and yeah with with winning a chariot race right yeah or, or with competing i love it because it uses the myth but it also talks about the historical olympia as well and that's why this is this this particular poem is really good for uh the study of the ancient study of the ancient games but it says at the end where it says throughout the rest of life the one who wins enjoys a honeyed calm now you could just look at that and say simply you know i won and and I, and I don't need to prove myself anymore. That that's that's good enough, and I can just relax on that. I don't need to contest or contend anymore, right? But when I when I hear that, and when I think about Olympia as well, I think about the the idea that these are Stephanitic games, and you win simply a crown, right? Mm -hmm. You win a loyal a laurel crown, but attached with that is the glory that we talked about, right? And this expression of arete and excellence, and it's a in it. But when you go back to your community, and this is the honeyed calm that I'm speaking about, what you do win is that you win the privilege of uh, free meals for life. So you, you're now enriched by your community, your neighbors, your, your polis, whatever, will feed you. So you don't have to worry about that sort of thing, right? That sort of day-to-day -day toil. And that's a big stress in the ancient world. And if you're freed from that, it does bring what, what the poet calls here a honeyed calm, right? Mm -hmm. At least it says, at least as regards to games, right? Yeah. Not, it says that is good, right? It says that good, however, which comes day by day is always uppermost for every mortal. It's, that's what he's saying that the concerns of mortals are. It is the work-a-day world, right? You have to look you have to work to get what you want, right? So those things are, are, are being evidenced by, by Pindar in those lines anyways, right? And then he says, as for himself, his job, his duty, that's right. Is to crown the man with music. Yep. The Stephanitic games, right? It's to compose these odes yeah. that will be sung for him. Mm -hmm. That's what you want. You want to get on the record. You want to be in the poem. You want to have a poem composed for you or be in a poem or something like that, right? That's how you achieve that immortality through song. And that's a mythopoetic structure, right? And then we come to this this reference, which may su suggest that this may only be the two-horse chariot. Mm -hmm. uh, Pindar says, um, you know, 
you've got a special guardian God, might he take care of you and your ambitions. And unless he leaves you suddenly, I hope to write a still or honor a still sweeter victory. Mm -hmm. So there's a suggestion with a swift chariot. Mm -hmm. So there's a suggestion there that there's another chariot race that Hiron might be racing in. Oh yeah. And being still sweeter that perhaps it's, the four, the four horse chariot. There you so, go. so there's some more to go. Yeah. There's some, some growing room. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. I, I like the way it ends um, where he goes out and compares his own skill with the skill of Kings. Uh, he goes to extend uh, his gratitude to, to Hieron himself. Right. Mm-hmm. And says, if you're looking for a better example of a King anywhere, don't bother. It's it don't, it says don't extend your gaze beyond this. And, uh, and then that's about it, right? And he sort of signs off, right? Yep. And he'll be back to keep company with those who win on future occasions. Oh, totally. Yeah. This is his the part where he hands out his business cards. Yep. In different matters, different men show greatness. And uh, Hiron does get his uh, get his four horse victory mm-hmm. in four sixty eight. Mm-hmm. So so he does go on to his to his greater. His greater victory. Yeah, that's a good time yeah. for the for the chariot race. But Pindar did not get to write that quote. No, he didn't. He didn't get that one. I wasn't commissioned. No. I, um, I, you know, there's a line just before that I would like to get your reaction to, where it says, "Now for me, the muse fosters in her reserves of force, the mightiest arrow." Wait, wait, how do you take that? And then notice how it goes in. It says, "In different matters, different men show greatness." That's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, I'm not. I'm not quite sure what to make of that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I'm. I'm not. And I'm not sure exactly either. The way the way I read it is that he's got he's got even better poetry to come. Yeah, like um, that there are that, other that, arrows that, that as good as this one might be. Yeah, he's got more. He's not finished. He's got more as mm-hmm. well mm-hmm. Um, to do. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, um, like, and and that he's got more more songs to write and sing for. Anyone. for for the Olympic Games. Totally. Yeah. yeah. And, well, anyone uh, in any games because he yeah. does the Pythian Olds and yeah. Isthmian. So they're all in there right yeah. now. For me, that's for me. He's speaking in first person, right? The muse fosters in her reserves of force the mightiest arrow, right? Uh, so there will there will be others, yeah. right? So look 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 ahead. And there's a huge corpus of work for Pindar. This is this is just the beginning, yes. right? Yeah, absolutely. Well, there we have it. There we have it. The, con- this, the, the a a story, of yeah. a myth of Pelops, the conflicted hero Pelops. Well, yes, only conflicted in the different myths that that are present, yeah. right? Which one so you can see how this like? is a very a very flattering picture of him mm-hmm. and of the gods. Mm-hmm. He doesn't quite jive with our modern idea of a hero. He he's not he he doesn't he doesn't in a way. Well, this one would in some ways. He yeah. seems noble. I mean, he he is taking courageous. out yeah, and he is taking out a guy who's killed thirteen men. So yeah. he's certainly heroic in in that sense. Well, this is something um, that. that yeah. But I I have found um, that sometimes. Uh, when I'm talking about this, particularly yep. with students, that Pelops is a bit of a tougher hero to get our head around. Um, and especially if we are looking at those other versions where he's cheating like, oh, and, yeah. and, well, and, and with Myrtilus and killing Myrtilus yeah. and, and, kind, and, and some of the other stuff that, that he does. Yeah. Um, because we are very used to thinking about heroes as sure. the good guy, TM, yeah. <laughs> um, and not having these equally bad sides totally at, at times so yeah um but I, yeah so pelops takes on takes on the task of marrying of marrying hippodamea and that means white taking out onomaeus 
Yeah, and then we get the beginning of the house of Atreus, mm -hmm. right? Because of his sons, you're going to have Thyestes and Atreus are, are part of that group. Yeah. And there's going to be a whole whack of politics going on in that. A lot that, of curses. That yeah. So, you know, that, that is something that does, that, does that does manifest itself in myth later. But for this story at this time, that's the image of Pelops that you get. Yeah. And it's a, little, it's a little cleaner. It's been sanitized. Yeah. It, it's more glorious. It's about a connection between a god and a man. There's no real, there's no, there's no, there's mention of the, of the, of the murder of a son at the hands of a father, but it's framed in the, as the, in the context of a lie, right? And that the crime is actually something very quite, is quite different. So I, when I look at what Pelops did, and they're going to say, well, what's heroic? He went out and won a chariot race. Well, yeah, but he also killed Ona Mouse. And Ona Mouse killed 13 other guys. Ask yeah. their families who they think he's a hero or not. They'll say yes. They'll say, well, what's his crime? What did he do? Well, not only did he kill those people, there's also sort of a subtext about the relationship between Onimaus and Hippodamia. Yeah. That she is, it's not natural for a father to cling to or cleave to a daughter no. over this long period of time. That she herself needs to move into another phase of life. She's a daughter. She's a young girl. She will become a wife and a mother. And this is a nuptial contest. Yes, it's, it's athletic and heroic, but it's a nuptial contest. He will win a bride, right? And Onimaus says, and well, Onimaus says, the myth says, that, well, we've come to learn in the corpus of myths that Onimaus gives the suitor a head start, right? And that No he, pun intended. No, no pun intended, <laughs> as he displays the massacred, beheaded bodies of his previous victims above his gates. But he places Hippodamia in the cart with yes. the suitors, thinking that he, they, the suitor, will be distracted by her beauty. Um, and uh, it works, well, has worked, but it doesn't really work on Pelops, right? Uh, and so he's victorious, but he does act as sort of a, an agent of justice in the sense that he severs that unnatural connection between father and daughter and, and, and socializes her in the sense becomes a, a, a husband. Well, right? and, and, and yeah, and if, if Oinomenius is she going to, is going to slaughter 13 yeah. suitors so easily, yeah. what does that say about what kind of ruler he is? Right. Yeah, and so crazy. his, his yeah. people, his people in general are yeah. probably... Probably relieved to be totally. rid of him. He's a psychopath. Yeah, he's a psychopath. Yeah. You know, yeah. uh, and so it, this is something that's this is the hero as civilizer. Yeah. Right. This, this act. Right. Yeah. So now the world is when we're talking about heroic decision before. Yeah. Face a heroic decision moves the hero into jeopardy to face the danger. Right. To act as a civilizer. Now the world is is right again. The sun will come up in the east. Something Excellent. like that. Science? No, it's not science. It's myth. All right. Well, what, what, I think what, we've. I think not to flog a dead horse, uh -huh. but I think we have. Uh, I think we have finished this race. Conjecture. Do you think oh. he ever? Did you think that Pelops returned to I'm horses? I'm trying to wrap the, up the horses of the chariot. Since we don't hear from him again, we can only assume that he did. Don't you think that would make sense? I think if he didn't, some bad stuff would happen. Exactly. Yeah. So I, I like that. Okay, okay. Never mind. I think I answered my own question. All okay. right. Let's do our All wrap right. up. Okay. So. Mm -hmm. um, that wraps it up for today. Okay. So thank you for listening. Thank you for joining in. Mm -hmm. um, you can join us on Twitter. We are both active on Twitter. I'm at Innes Allison. I'm at Darren Sundstrom. And you can just search for the hashtag MythTake. Yep. Check out the hashtag Humanities Podcasts as well to find out more great, to find out about more great uh, episodes from other great podcasters about all kinds of things, um, including there's a Greek history one 
Um, there's some etymology, there's philosophy, there's all kinds of really interesting uh, listening. To the humanities you. you want, we've got you covered. Yeah. And get in touch with us. We've got a form on our website, actually, that people can, a contact form that people can get in touch with us through or through Twitter or on our Facebook page, which is also called Myth Take. Yep. Um, so we're Myth Take. We're pretty well branded, <laughs> consistently branded. Um, so just search for Myth Take. Check us out at mythtake.blog. And this and has been episode 19. Yes, episode 19. We will see you back for episode 20. Thanks for listening, everybody. Good night. Good night. If you like this podcast, you might be interested in other podcasts that focus on the humanities. In fact, if you search Twitter for the hashtag Humanities Podcasts, you'll find plenty of shows on history, language, literature, philosophy, art, and more. These are podcasts by people who enjoy telling stories, exploring the arts in our world, and who want to share their knowledge. Some examples of podcasts you'll find are Go Dig a Hole, an archaeology podcast, the Trojan War podcast, which retells the classic myth, and As We Like It, where three friends talk about film adaptions of Shakespeare. Search the hashtag Humanities Podcast today, or follow Humanities Podcasters on Twitter. And if you're a Humanities Podcaster, use the hashtag in your tweets so others can find you. <laughs>